Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Vijay Sankaran. Vijay is the Chief Technology Officer of Johnson Controls, a 135-year-old global leader in smart, healthy, and sustainable buildings that earns in excess of $25 billion in annual revenue. Vijay's been in role for a bit less than two and a half years, and in it, he's responsible for a global organization of 2,500 software engineers and technologists with a responsibility for software engineering, for building management systems across video surveillance, intrusion, access controls, as well as for the OpenBlue software platform, which integrates telemetry and alerts across the building and space environment to provide analytical insights and optimization suggestions to its users, leveraging machine learning and AI models. That's quite a bit, and I'm looking forward to parsing through uh, some of that in our conversation. Vijay is a past a chief information officer at TD Ameritrade, among multiple executive roles that he's held. Vijay, welcome back to Technovation. It's always great to speak with you. Yeah, thanks so much, Peter. It's fantastic to be here once again. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, let's let's begin uh, with uh, your company, Johnson Controls. Uh, for those who may be less familiar with it, give, give us a quick overview as to the business you're in, please. Yeah, so you know, Johnson Controls is ultimately all about buildings, the products that cool buildings, heat buildings, keep buildings secure, control all of the automation in the buildings, the software that then can optimize those buildings and then the services to actually improve those buildings. So end to end, it's about keeping buildings smarter, safer, healthier, and more sustainable. So that's the business fundamentally that Johnson Controls is in. That's a great overview. And, and as I noted, uh, your your title is Chief Technology Officer. And, and admittedly, that's a role that if you had 10 CTOs in a room, you'd have 10 different sets of responsibilities. It uh, applies in a variety of different ways, but it certainly applies very broadly in your case. Uh, I, talk a bit about the the manner in which, because I know this is, having gotten to know you over the years, that this has been a role that's grown since joining uh, the company uh, some nearly two and a half years ago. Talk a bit about the rationale and the logic of the the responsibilities that you, you now have uh, under your purview, please. Yeah, absolutely. So when I first came to Johnson Controls back in May of 2021, you know, my, my primary focus was really around building out the technology platform to support our growth in the space of smart buildings and sustainable buildings. And so we were just in the process of incubating Open Blue. And so a lot of what I did was focused around the architecture and the engineering teams and you know the agility in the organization and the convergence between our enterprise software platforms and our building management systems platforms. So a lot of it was really much more architecturally oriented. And that first year and a half, we did a couple of capability acquisitions that I brought on board. One was Tempered Networks based in Seattle to do zero trust cybersecurity, and then also Foghorn, which was edge AI and analytics, which is another key capability. And then as time went on, you know, we had a few people leave the company and we started to really think about, you know, how do we better organize our software business going forward to move it from skunk works into, you know, a growth and profit enterprise, you know, for Johnson Controls. And so then I took on the responsibility for digital product management as well. And then now customer success and really how do we go to market? And I have oversight over the commercial organization as well. So now I've taken on full responsibility for uh, the entire end-to-end digital business from a PL standpoint and also now have done a major acquisition 
uh, with FM Systems out of Raleigh, North Carolina, which is very complementary to what we're doing with Open Blue around the front end of the building's optimization space with doing asset mapping and facilities mapping, as well as how do we use space utilization data from sensors to optimize you know, the usage of the space, as well as improve the employee experience. So that's uh, just to give you a snippet of how my role has expanded while I still wear a key technical hat for the company on topics like AI and data and analytics and engineering and, and software delivery, you know, my my purview has expanded. And I would say more of my focus is now on the customer and the commercial and the financial aspects of running a digital business. And fascinating, VGA. I can only imagine uh, not that long ago, predating your arrival, you know, let's say a decade or two back, that this would be a business that would not nearly be as digitally uh, comprehensive as you're describing, that customer touch points wouldn't have been thought of. I mean, this is true of, of so many businesses, not unique sure. to organization like yours. And yep. it strikes me with what you've described, the acquisitions that have taken place, uh, the 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 fact that you have these this end-to-end responsibility for digital business and major customer touch points, that it's reflective of how truly strategic the digital side of things has become in what is you know very much a tactile uh, business at the end of the day as well. Talk a bit about that evolution from where you sit as well. The 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 growing uh essential element that is the digital side of what, what's done in a business like Johnson Controls? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that, I mean, all of it is is done out of customer problem spaces, opportunity spaces, you know, that, that creates, you know, the drivers for these platforms, right? And I would say, you know, five years back, you know, while we were talking about sustainability and energy efficiency and health and spaces, right? I mean, a lot of that has really accelerated now with the macro level influences of climate change and the pandemic and, you know, wanting to be more uh, efficient, you know, in terms of visibility as people are coming back into the office or not coming back into the office and how can I optimize my spaces more, right? So I think it's these megatrends at the end of the day that are driving, you know, the need for more utilization of data analytics and AI within our business really to optimize these spaces. That plus, you know, as you know, in other industries, the equipment inside of the building begins to be more standardized and have more clear connection mechanisms. And, you know, we understand how to take that IoT data and convert it into value for our customers. You know, we can begin to start start to look at efficiency you know, guarantees and efficiency predictions and really try to drive, you know, that that fully autonomous building. Labor is also very scarce in this particular industry and finding good people. And so the more that we can drive efficiency through software, data, analytics, and AI, you know, I think the customer base is beginning to see that there's tangible value in doing that, right? And I would say that's the real big evolution that's happened in this space as it has in every other space, right? I mean, as you know, Peter, having followed this for so many years, for digitization, it's never a matter of if, it's always a matter of when. And this space has been growing and you know, we're seeing just extreme accelerated growth in this space as well right now. 
kudos to you for making the case successfully and and being surrounded by an executive team uh, that is also willing to make the investments necessary. And it, it strikes me also, you talked about the uh, tempered networks, Foghorn, uh, FM systems acquisitions. Uh, you talked about, you know, uh, tempered network, zero trust, Foghorn, edge AI and analytics. It's interesting also that the organization is making that level of a commitment, bringing these resources and, and products inside, not just ecosystem players setting up, you know, partnerships. I'm sure you have many of those across uh, the tech landscape as well, but it strikes me as also a consequential uh, indication of the degree of, of support for this, that, that this is going to be a more fully digitized business by bringing in that weight of, a, of, a, of an investment and, and, and talent and product into the organization itself. Is that a fair way to typify it? Yeah. And I mean, you, you have to think about it this way. I mean, our, our CEO talks about it on investor calls. I mean, we want to be digital at the core. We want to be more digital in the way that we do business, right? You know, if you think about the prior model of servicing a building, it was a very reactive model. If something breaks, you call up somebody, they come and, you know, they look at it and they do the triage, but you could be down, you know, it could impact um, a wing of a hospital, for example, if a chiller is down. Uh, so it was a very reactive model. And by being digital at the core and really digitalizing our services, we are now becoming more proactive. And so we're continually getting data off of our chillers and other equipment. And we're able to predict using AI or even be able to react more quickly when we see you know, a potential issue on the horizon, right? And so that's like a very virtuous cycle for our company, especially as we see services being one of the biggest growth engines for what we're trying to do over the next three to five years. And so um, I think that's what has made digital an absolute core part of where we're going as a business. I always tell people, you know, I did an investor day presentation back in August of 2021 when I got here. And the fundamental strategy of what we laid out back then is still the path forward for Johnson Controls. Now, the reality is, is that in the meantime, We've connected 15,000 chillers. We're, we've you know launched two or three new connected offerings. We've expanded the Open Blue platform. We've done three acquisitions. And so we're seeing the market traction around services and software as creating outcomes for our customers that are tangible and real. And that's what really, I think, creates that you know underlying energy across the ecosystem. Very interesting. And it strikes me also that you have, uh, from your perch, uh, a, a great vantage point to see the evolution of how workspaces are being used, how offices are being used. And I wonder if you could share, I, I realize that you I, you must see the gamut uh, um, from one end to the, to the, to the, the, from some companies that are returning to ways of work somewhat akin to 2019, others that are, you know, spending very little time in offices and every time, everything in between. Can you talk a little bit about some of the interesting observations that you have had about uh, um, how work is shaped these days and how how organizations yeah it's a work. it's a favorite topic you know um, for all of us and so you know being in the buildings business we actually we obviously want more people to return back into the office you know um, as much as possible because you know at the end of the day um, you know that's that's virtuous for our business and we also think that you know people collaborating face to face is you know, really important in terms of driving productivity and effectiveness in terms of, of interaction. That being said, we're seeing the gamut in terms of um, interaction models, right? I think 
if you look at things regionally, for example, um, you know, Asia Pacific is, uh, has, you know, been very, quote unquote, pre-pandemic normal in terms of people being in the office, you know, and so you could see in Asia Pacific upwards of 70, 80%, you know, utilization. Um, I would say Europe is probably more in the middle because, you know, um, you know, you have had some of that pandemic effect, but I, you also have, you know, lots of different countries with different labor laws and, and different structures that I think are incentivized to bring in more people back into the office. Um, in North America, I think that's where it's been more challenging for a lot of reasons. One is, you know, all of the companies have hired good talent all over the United States in the pandemic era. And we've also all made many acquisitions that create an already distributed workforce. And I think there's a more, you know, you could say democratization of employee feelings around the why, you know, why do I need to be back in the office? Why do I need to drive 45 minutes and lose that efficiency? You know, um, so there's a lot, lot more uh, of a, I guess, quote unquote, debate around that. That's the reality of what we're seeing is we're seeing in general, 30 to 50 percent, you know, sort of um, average weekly utilization in, in some of the commercial type footprints that we see. Um, but, you know, I think employers are really making a lot more of an effort to kind of really encourage people to come back into the office, collaborate, interact. That's something that we're certainly trying to do. Now, for, for our business, though, when you think about spaces, spaces include hospitals, they include higher ed, they include K through 12, they include retail. And so when we talk about returning to the office, we're talking strictly about, you know, corporate campuses. When you look at spaces like hospitals or airports or higher ed, those are packed. I mean, having dropped a child off at college last weekend, I can tell you none of those kids wants to do college remotely. I don't think it's it's fair to sort of normalize, you know, the utilization in spaces. In general, this is what's happening. It really varies by geography. Uh, it varies by type of structure and domain. But I certainly think in the United States, uh, in particular, returning back into the office uh, has been a slower, a slower walk back. And how has this impacted the way that you've thought about work with your team, VJ? Uh, what sorts of policies do you have in place and ways of working um, as a result of some of what you described, or perhaps just even further translation into the way? Yeah, that I mean, you know, um, the way that we've articulated it as a leadership team is that you know we expect our employees to come into the office um, three days a week, you know, where they live near. Uh, you know, uh, a Johnson Controls, you know, engineering facility. And I have a set of designated engineering facilities that um, people can come into. And really the way that I've articulated it is that, hey, this is more for that incubation of ideas and, and so on and so forth. You know, secondarily, I've also looked at some spaces where, you know, maybe our footprint just isn't that big and consolidated them with other spaces that are, you know, in the same proximity, you know, just so that there could be a bigger footprint of employees in one, one space. And then trying to create more of a pull um, as opposed to just like 
a blanket policy and saying, hey, you know, like we're going to have lunch brought into the office or we're going to do an after hours get together or something like that, just to kind of encourage people to, you know, break those habits that, you know, have been calcified during the pandemic, you know. But I mean, I'll be the first to admit it's very difficult to change a habit that's become highly calcified, right? And um, just in terms of, you know, this is what the people, what people have lived essentially for two years straight, right? And there is a tremendous amount of benefit that comes with that level of flexibility, right? My, you know, my belief is that you have to give people the right spaces that they're going back into. So if people feel like, okay, uh, I go into a space and there's nobody else there, you know, that's going to be a deterrent for them to do it the next time. I go to a space and I don't have a desk available to me. That's going to be a deterrent for them. I go to a space and I can't connect to my IT facilities like printers and things like that. That's going to be a deterrent. I don't have food easily available to me. That's an, another deterrent, right? And so you have to sort of think through now, I think going forward, more of this employee experience, right? The other thing is this, you know, the global workforce has been and is the norm, you know? And so, and we've made it even, we've taken even more advantage of it during the pandemic because we said, okay, people are at home, they can get on calls at 7 a.m., 9 p.m., you know, whatever it may be because they can, right? And people were okay with it because, you know, maybe then they drop their kids off at school at 8 a.m., you know, and they had their flexibility to do that, right? But now it's like, okay, we want you to be on that call at 7 a.m. and you got to be in the office. There's a little bit of this, okay, is my life getting better or worse here, right? So I think we have to really think through and design the way that we work going forward. Um, There's no silver bullet. There's no blueprint. I think it has to be thought through organization by organization. I read something over the weekend in the Wall Street Journal I thought was fascinating about what um, Smuckers is trying to do, where they're having people in 22 core weeks of the year um, in campus and trying to really drive up, you know, um, utilization. Um, That will work for them, um, where there's a really strong centralized corporate culture in in. Ohio or, or wherever they were, their base, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Um, I'm not sure that that same pattern works for other companies because of the global footprint of, that, that exists for those companies. So I think every company has to sort of think it through and then um, really think through the personas also of, of how people are, are working, right? So we have frontline workers who we need out in the field. We have, you know, technicians that maybe stop by a branch, gather their materials, and then we want them out on jobs. We have engineers who have a large footprint in India and then all over the world, right? We have engineers that need to be working in factories. We have factories. So a lot of it is like very persona dependent, I think, at the end of the day. And, you know, we'll all learn more through this process over the next couple of years. So Really interesting. Great examples all. I really appreciate that, Vijay. Talk a bit about the role that you see technology playing in guiding businesses to determine how best to leverage the space that they have. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. At the end of the day, you know, we are learning to run our business through 
you know, shared digital platforms. And so, you know, we're a big Atlassian shop, for example, um, you know, in software engineering. So we put all of our documents in Confluence. We track everything religiously in, in JIRA. You know, we have a standard platform for how we release software on a global basis. Um, you know, we use Microsoft Teams for all of our collaboration and things like that. And so I, I think, again, at the end of the day, we have grown so accustomed to this that, you know, it doesn't feel like, okay, I need to do something different, right? And now we have additional tools with generative AI, like GitHub Copilot, that adds additionally on top of that. So I think, you know, the technologies continue to emerge and are available that create more efficiency in terms of the way that we work on a day-to-day -day basis. And that creates so much options around flexibility. People can be in a hotel and they can be productive. People can be in an airport and they can be productive. People can be, you know, out on an island in the middle of the Atlantic and be productive. But I do think there's something to be said about in-person, face-to-face interaction, however that's defined. But someone's not going to be there even when you do have in-person, face-to-face interaction. So then how do you create that platform that connective tissue isn't disrupted and someone who is remote feels alienated and can continue to contribute into those conversations? So again, I would say it's less about the technology and actually more about the business processes. Yeah, very interesting. Great, great framing there, VJ. Appreciate that. And I wondered uh, in the data that you see in your own experience in your setting, if you've uh, diagnosed any uh, differences across generations in terms of their desire to be in offices or not. I'm, I realize I'm asking you to paint with a bit of a broad brushstroke here, but any interesting conclusions of what you're seeing as to those people who naturally gravitate to offices versus those perhaps less so? There's no question in my mind that as you look at earlier stage employees, there's a desire to have a lot more flexibility, right? Maybe it's not even the desire or doesn't exist for our generation, right? Um, I would say, Peter, you and I are like sort of the transition generation, you know, which is we like flexibility, yet at the same time, if we're asked to like be into a physical space, we'll comply just because that's kind of how our generation is is wired. Yet we'll grumble about it. And given the opportunity, you know, not to be in the physical space at a particular point in time, we'll take advantage of that opportunity, right? Previous generations are much more sort of ingrained around returning to a physical space. I think as you go further and further down through the millennials to now Gen Z, when I think about my own children or younger stage employees, I mean, they feel like they can do a lot on just the mobile phone and they feel like they can do a lot on their tablet that they're carrying around. You know, they're also very much interested in in a higher a higher quality of life and balance and flexibility to work and play in different kind of environments globally. And so I definitely think that that is a byproduct of globalization, the way that millennials, Gen Y and Gen Z embrace technology and just being so comfortable with being productive in many diverse environments and setting, right? Um, some of which I think is uh, a little bit more foreign as you move up 
the stage and the and the generations. I'm not a prognosticator, but I, I would say that over the next 10 years, as the baby boomer generation transitions out of the workforce and uh, Gen X becomes the most senior members of the workforce, and you see more and more uh, millennials and Gen Y take on more and more senior leadership roles, that this notion of flexibility is going to be the new norm. I think you're going to see reimagining and rethinking of how people design their spaces, think through their spaces. I think you're going to see more hubs that are open without offices where people use it as a place to check in and you know collaborate um, with breakout rooms and things like that and less formal, you know, cubicle or office office structures um, as people go by and the need for less space because you know it's almost like a check-in check-out format you know this sort of you know returns me like almost to experiments that were run back in the early 2000s when I was at Ford where we had these remote work centers where people could get together that were closer to their homes that they could collaborate in and then they could go into into Dearborn when they needed to those were not successful because a, the, the proximity between Dearborn and those remote centers weren't really, you know, um, that dispersed. And the cost of equipping those remote centers, you know, were higher because we, we hadn't sort of progressed around the lower costs of internet and bandwidth technologies that we have today. Now, with, with what we have today, I see that paradigm sort of becoming the new norm, which is, okay, we're, we're, we would rather take a bunch of different hubs of, you know, five to 10,000 feet, you know, closer to where there are groups and populations of employees so they can collaborate and then potentially work remotely different days of the week, right? And then maybe if they go to another part of the world where there's another hub, they can go check in at that hub. It'll be interesting to see how these patterns sort of evolve here over the next, you know, 10 years or so. A variety of trends we're, we're talking about here. I wanted to ask you more generally speaking, are the ones we haven't uh, discussed at length yet, VJ, that are particularly exciting to you as you look to the future? Above all, what is going to be the future with generative AI is probably the most important trend that from a technology perspective, we should all be contemplating. Having been a technologist my entire life, when I look at tectonic shifts in technology. There was the advent of the internet, you know, circa 1993 to 1995, where you had the first form of, you know, mosaic and web browsing. The advent of search circa 1997, 1998, you know, with Google coming up. The advent of the iPhone, um, sort of, you know, 2008, 2009. And AI, but really now generative AI sort of being a fundamental platform upon which we'll see, you know, um, significant innovation, right? Um, and these are just computational shifts that have happened. There's also other shifts like what we saw during the pandemic with vaccination discovery and things like that with mRNA. But in the com computational front, which is what I follow the most, this is a tectonic shift just because it is the first time in human history where so much information has been assimilated 
and can be synthesized to uh, a very interactive Q&A style response so quickly. For anyone who's used GPT, you know, you can quickly determine what, you know, the awe-inspiring capabilities of, of what the future of GPT will undoubtedly create. Similar to where we were back in the late 90s, early 2000s with the dot-com era, we're just entering in the generative AI era. So we're in sort of the first three innings of the generative AI era. What is going to happen as a result of the generative AI era? What are going to be the applications that emerge from that? What happens when multiple types of AI get combined together? What are the applications that are going to dominate the ecosystem? Now, it's clear that there's low-hanging fruit around things like service and tech support and, you know, creation of different types of contractual documents and things like that, that, you know, should be fairly straightforward to perfect, you know, in, in generative AI 1.0. The question is, what is generative AI 2.0 or 3.0 going to, be, to bring, right? Um, in terms of natural conversations and translations. You know, when I read um, Reed Hastings' book, Impromptu, where he wrote the book with a conversation with GPT-4, uh, I was blown away about the, the styles of personas that GPT-4 could take on, the, the third-party conversations you could generate in GPT-4 through the way you ask it certain questions. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing, the level of capability. Where does that evolve to in terms of creative pursuits or medical pursuits or how those prompts get engineered? The next few years will, will, will tell us a whole lot more. That's going to be breathtaking to see, see what happens. The other big thing is um, similar in the sense that uh, I see convergence um, around different forms of quote-unquote technology happening faster than ever. And so this, you know, this convergence between what was typically, you know, a mechanical field or whether something was a biological field or whether something was a chem chemistry-oriented field and how that's all meshing, you know, with computation as the underlying fundamental construct. So if you think about like the sophistication of bio trackers or the sophistication of, you know, um, genetic based predictions using biological processes and biological data and applying traditional computational principles on top of that, the acceleration of that to be able to understand how systems operate is accelerating beyond belief. As you put those two things together and you think about where our lifetimes will end or how long our lifetimes will be, right? Or what will that look like? There's just so many profound possibilities to contemplate. And that could be exciting or scary, depending upon what vantage point you're sitting from. Very well said and very interesting examples across the board again, Vijay. Thank you for those. I, I wanted to also ask you, as somebody who's uh, had a chief in his title at three different uh, uh, scaled organizations from Ford to TD Ameritrade, now Johnson Controls, what have been some of the difference makers for you along the way, VJ, on your rise to these uh, roles of consequence in companies of consequence as well? That's a great question, Peter. I mean, this is something that, you know, I reflect on a lot. And um, 
You know, I think for me, number one, it starts with purpose and just really clearly understanding, like, why do we exist, right? Um, what is the purpose of what I'm doing at the end of the day and making sure everything that the organization is doing connects back to the purpose, you know, whether it's the purpose of delivering uh, solutions to make buildings more energy efficient, right? And then, you know, the business, you know, we're, we're trying to run a business at the end of the day. And, and ultimately, you know, the goal of a business is to grow and to make a profit. And so how does everything that we do connect back to those business fundamentals? So that's, it's, it's the purpose foremost and connecting everything back to that. Secondly, it's the people, you know, like having the right teams, the right leadership and making sure that, you know, this trust relationship exists between the people that are in your organization, the people that work for you, who can be completely transparent around the issues. And now being a veteran of very, very senior jobs for the last 15 years of multi-thousand person organizations, you know, things are going to happen that are not always going to make you happy. As a leader, recognizing that that's going to happen really understanding how do you be direct, you know, with your team, yet at the same time, showing the fact that you support them and understand them and can relate to those challenges, being empathetic to their needs, right? I think it's that trust between the leader and the organization that they're working with and the leadership team that they're working with. And I'm so fortunate that I have a wonderful group of leaders, you know, I've worked with many of them previously, and I have a really strong trust-based relationship with that's very, very helpful in my maintaining my own sanity on a day-to-day -day basis. And then finally, I think it's it's the culture, right? I really believe that you have to have a high-performance, caring culture, right? And what does that mean? And that was a term I won't take credit for, but uh, uh, my previous CEO at TD Ameritrade coined this term, high-performance, caring culture, which is ultimately... We're here to create results that at the end of the day, you know, the inputs that you put into the business are what create the outputs. Little things matter in your business. So as a leader, you have to always be watching out and teaching people around what are those potholes? Because ultimately, you know, if you're going out for a jog and you don't see the potholes, you can break your left foot and you'll be out of commission for six weeks, speaking through personal experience. Ultimately, guiding your teams, you know, in a high performance culture to see those potholes is extremely important part of leadership. And then finally, it's when they do break their feet, being caring. People have stuff going on in their lives. You know, they say that we belong to the sandwich generation. And sometimes I wonder if it's like, if it's a sandwich or if it's actually like, you know, a vice or something like that, you know, that that we're being sandwiched in between, right? You know, and when, when you say rock in a hard place in me, you know, it feels like that many days of the week. If you're feeling this is what you're going through, your team's feeling it and your organization's feeling it, right? And being transparent that you acknowledge it and really being empathetic towards it is what creates the caring part of that culture. For me, I believe that every leader needs to put those three ingredients together in terms of, you know, creating a successful path of leadership, you know, for their organization going forward. At least that's been my 
secret to my success, I guess. <laughs> no, that's wonderful. It's really well stated, Vijay. I really appreciate those reflections and uh, uh, certainly great cultural attributes for you to draw upon as it clearly you have from across multiple stops uh, in your career and something you're also uh, continuing to, to think a lot about in your current post. Well, well, Vijay Sankaran, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, to learn from you, uh, to hear about the remarkable things that you and your team are doing, and especially uh, given the perks that you have, the potential consequences for all of us uh, through what you, you've described in terms of uh, how we will work and where that work will take place. Uh, thank you so much for a really interesting conversation. Thanks so much, Peter. It's, it's always a pleasure spending time on your podcast. I, I'm so appreciative of the work that you do in terms of getting insights from leader. I learn, learn as much from the other podcasts that you do as I, you know, enjoy participating in yours. So thank you for what you do. You're very kind to say that. Thanks again, Vijay.